Make your way on over to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to continue our exposition of the book of Philippians, and we are nearing the end. So thankful for you being here this morning, for the new folks that I got to meet. We want to just uh, to welcome you and answer any questions you have, so please come and see us if you have questions about our church, our ministry, our mission here at Grace Church Monterey Bay, but it's a joy to be with you this Sunday, and I'm looking forward to uh, unpacking Philippians uh, chapter 4, and we're in verses 10 through 13. Would you please join me, and let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, we are truly grateful for another day, another opportunity now to grow in grace and truth, and we recognize, God, how dependent we are on you. We pray that you would please speak powerfully through your word, give us understanding, give us um, ears to hear and eyes to see, and we pray that you ultimately, God, would glorify your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me ask this. If there was one sin, one sin that you could be done away with for the rest of your life, you had an option right now to pick. What sin do you think you would want to be done away with forever? What sin would that be? Maybe you say pride, certainly a big sin that has implications for other areas in your life. What about lust? I know some of you would really enjoy putting to death lust in your life. Greed, addiction, stills your joy, kills your time. How about lying? Maybe you desire to be honest for the rest of your life. Imagine if for the rest of your life you never committed this sin again, Say, that would be amazing, Dom. My guess is, though, as you think about this one sin to kill, you're going to be strategic with it. Because hopefully it's something that you would kill that would kill a lot of other sins. So pride certainly is one of those things that leads to other sins. Selfishness is another sin that leads to other sins. But what about discontentment? Discontentment tends to be a wellspring of iniquity. I mean, think about this with me. Have you ever met someone who had an affair, but they were perfectly content? Have you ever met a perfectly contented thief? If we had more contentment in this life, I'm sure that what we would see less of is Angry people, bitter people, jealous people, envious people, egotistical people, if there was more contentment. You can argue that the evil twins of disbelief and discontent are what the serpent tempted Eve with in the garden when you think about that sinister but subtle temptation. All he really did was say, did God really say? I mean, isn't God withholding good from you? Don't you think if God really wanted you to be happy, then he wouldn't be putting all these restrictions on you? But we all know that once our great, 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 great grandparents 
bit the bait and doubted the goodness of God. From that point, it was just a small, short step down a slippery slope that discontentment really plummeted us into sin. And here we are years later, the reality, not much has changed. The enemy still tempts us. The world tempts us. And it tempts us to believe that God hasn't given us what's best. Our flesh also falls in the trap of thinking that earthly satisfaction, that's the main purpose in life. That's what you're here for. And even as Jordan prayed, people are gathered all across the globe to worship the Lord, but also all around the globe in every culture and every continent, there's this discontent. And it feels like the entire world has conspired to stir up this discontentment within us. And we see it. You probably saw it on the way over here. It's on billboards. It's on brochures. It's on advertisements. It's on attractions. And it screams, look, you deserve better. You deserve more. You want this. You need this. And man's motto is, if I only had this thing, then I would truly be happy. If I only just had this one thing, then finally I would be satisfied. And when you think about this mentality, it doesn't just come through the television, although it does come through there, and it's not just our tempting thoughts, but it comes through people. It comes through people telling you that you can be better, that you should be better, that you should do more, you should have more, you should be more satisfied. The fact is that our culture is not interested in finding contentment. What our culture, culture is interested in is more consumption. More, more, more. If you just use our product, things would be so much greater. I mean, don't you want to be thinner and stronger and faster? Don't you want to be more good-looking, happier, cleaner, sexier, freer, wealthier, healthier? Then all you got to do is buy this. And what we learn is that advertisers, advertisers, they're driving us down this dark alley of discontentment, and the only off-ramp is more, consumption, get yours. And so the question we're asking this morning, well, how do we as Christians, how do we fight against this temptation? How do we fight against the fleshly and cultural pressure of discontentment? Where do we turn to turn away from this idea of consumption. You say, well, maybe psychology is helpful. Maybe, but probably not. A 12-step program, also not the best thing. How about just telling yourself to stop it? We've explored that already. Hey, don't worry, be happy. That doesn't work. Be thankful for what you have. Okay, but that doesn't fully work. There are some people that have it much worse than you do. Okay, true, but that's not going to do it. Hey, things could be much, much worse. Also true, but what's the silver bullet? Is there a silver bullet? I think there is, and it's right here in our text. As we look at God's Word and we look at what Paul says about contentment. So let's read here in Philippians chapter 4, and starting in verse 10. This is what Paul writes. 
He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So here's our main idea for this morning. In Philippians 4, 10 through 13, Paul gives us what we call the secret of contentment. And you say, Dom, what is the secret? It is being consumed with our communion with God and we trust in his sovereignty and sufficiency in all things. Our contentment is communing with God as we trust in his sovereignty and his sufficiency in all things. And we'll look at three major headings that will guide our time this morning. The first is found in verse 10, and it is this, that contentment is the fruit of gratitude. Contentment is the fruit of gratitude. Then we'll look at verses 11 and 12, and we'll discover that contentment is a learned spiritual discipline. And then finally, we'll conclude with verse 13, and we learn there that contentment is resting in Christ's sufficiency. So let's begin there in verse 10. Contentment is the fruit of gratitude. Look at what Paul says here. He says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly. This is where he begins. You see, upon receiving the gift that came from the Philippians, Paul can't help but rejoice. We know that this letter is all about rejoicing because we see it all over the place. Joy jumps off of every page in the letter. So it's there in 1.4 and 118 and 125 and 2.2 and 217, 2.18, 2.28, 2.29, 3.1, 4.1, Joy, 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 joy. It's deep down in Paul's heart. And it says here that he actually has a super joy. Look there at the text. He stresses the depth of this delight and he uses an emphatic Greek word. He says, megalos, megalos. What does that word sound like? Mega. He's got mega joy. He wants them to understand the intensity of his delight. Now remember, where is Paul at this time? He's in prison. He's under house arrest, which makes it all the more stunning because the conditions aren't great. He's still uncertain on what the verdict will be. Is it yes to live or no to die? Is he going to have his head chopped off? Right now, Paul, he's confined just to a pen and just to writing, and he's chained to soldiers. And then all of a sudden, here comes brother Epaphroditus. He walks through the door with gifts and with abounding love from the church. And when you envision that scene, you understand why Paul is so moved with joy because through that one man that comes through the door, a whole church is saying, Paul, we love you. We miss you. We want to help you. We want to provide for you. And here is the tangible, physical gift as an expression of God's love for you and provision for you. Now, we're not told exactly what the gift is. Paul doesn't mention the amount. That's because the gift and the amount of the gift is not as important as Paul's gratitude for the giver of the gift. You see, once again, God has met Paul's needs. 
And he, this time, has stirred the hearts of the entire church to send Epaphroditus all the way to deliver this gift. Now, secondly there, notice that Paul was thankful for their continued remembrance of him. So your translation, it might say, now at last you have revived, or you renewed your concern for me. Literally, what the text says is, the act of thinking on my behalf. Now, some have taken this the wrong way when they read this, because they say, man, it kind of looks like Paul's getting on them for forgetting about him while he's in prison. He's saying, essentially, hey, it's about time you remembered me. I've just been sitting here in prison. You've left me all by myself. You haven't written me a letter giving me any goods. That's not what's happening here. You see, Paul is not trying to guilt them. Paul is not rebuking them. Quite the opposite. He's expressing his thanks to God. And he says, look, God has stirred your heart at this time to provide for my needs. You know that axiom that says, out of sight, out of what? That wasn't true of the Philippian church. They were always thinking about Paul, always thankful for Paul. Here's the third observation, is that Paul was grateful that God provided the right opportunity for the church to support him. You see, they always had him on his mind, but they lacked opportunity to meet his need. Look there at the text. Paul says, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. And so Paul clarifies that he understands they were not lacking sympathy, they were just lacking opportunity. This morning, I had um, a family member send me some money through PayPal for my birthday. That's fantastic. What a convenience. You couldn't do that back then. You can't PayPal Paul some money. You're not hardwiring him some money. There was no electronic transfers. And that's what makes Epaphroditus traveling over 800 miles in a very arduous and difficult journey to deliver this gift to the Apostle Paul. What an expression of love. So Paul was extremely grateful for the Philippians' participation and partnership. He was grateful for their care and concern for him. They expressed their love in a tangible way, not just with money, not just with gifts, but with Epaphroditus who was there to bolster his brother's faith. And when we think, church, about how God is so faithful to us to provide for our needs, so good in his providence, It's hard to be discontent, is it not? So listen, gratitude grows our contentment. That's point number one. Point number two is contentment is a learned spiritual discipline. Look there at verse 11. Paul says this, Not that I speak from want, for I learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So Paul here, he he wants to make clear at the outset that his gratitude for the gift was, it was overflowing. But his gratitude wasn't dependent on the gift itself. He was thankful that they had given generously to him, but he wanted to them to understand that his circumstances didn't touch his contentment. You catch that? And look what he says. He says, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. 
And what Paul does here is he basically provides an autobiography of his unshakable contentment. But notice that he doesn't speak of contentment like it's a spiritual gift. He doesn't speak like he was born with this thing. I've heard people say something like, you know, I don't have the gift of contentment. And you think about that statement, that's like saying, well, I don't have the gift of holiness, or I don't have the gift of righteousness. Well, yeah, because it just doesn't come naturally. It's something that we grow in and mature in and progress in. Look at what Paul says twice. I learned. I learned. This is something that he had to be taught. And he didn't learn it going to Jewish school. He didn't learn it by being discipled by Gamaliel. This wasn't passed down from the Pharisees. It wasn't in the school of the Sanhedrin. He didn't understand this fully and faithfully when he was on the road to Damascus. You say, well, Dom, then how how did he learn this skill God used, listen to this, struggle and suffering in Paul's life? Paul had trial. He had temptation. He even had what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And all of those things put together developed a deep sense of contentment. Each day, Paul grew in his realization that his position and his prominence and his health and his wealth, those are not the things that give us contentment. It wasn't stuff that satisfied Paul. It was Christ. And so this is something that you have to learn by way of experience. And that's what the word actually means. Look at the word there, menuo. It actually means to learn by experience, to to genuinely understand and accept something is true, and then not only that, to apply it to your own life personally. This is why you can read a book. This is a fantastic book. You should go right now. Don't listen to what I'm saying. Just get it on Amazon right now. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is a phenomenal book. It will change your life. But is that all? You can listen to a sermon, and that's certainly helpful. But listen to this. It's not enough for us to hear what we must be. We must learn and be what we hear. Let me say it again. It's not enough for us to hear what we must be. We must learn and be what we hear. Here's the truth. There's a lot of people that listen to sermons. They hear sermons, but they learn little. They even actually do less. Jesus tells the parable of the soil in Luke 8. You'll be very familiar. There's four kinds of soil, all four here, but only one truly grows. The Puritan Thomas Watson in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, he reminds us that contentment doesn't come easy. He says, you want to know what comes easy? Sin comes easy. We're by nature disgruntled, grumpy, and unthankful. But listen to what Watson says. He says, the trade of sin needs not be learned, but the art of divine contentment is not achieved without holy industry. What he's saying is, look, you have to learn it by experience. And it is hard. It's hard work. It's a process. And it's a process that's often cultivated in the soil of suffering. So how are we to learn this secret? Paul gives us a clue in the word he uses. It's a compound word, and it's loaded with meaning. Look at it there. The word is 
altar case. Altar case. It comes from altos, which means self, and it comes from the verb archeo, which means sufficient. Only place that this happens in the New Testament, but in other writings it's used of a country that basically has everything. Uh, you would think that the United States would boast about this, but even we are dependent on other countries and nations for our resources. But this was a country that possessed all the products, had all the natural resources, and so this is a country that is self-sufficient. That is what the word says. And the Stoics used this word to describe themselves. The Stoics were the Greek philosophers during the time that felt that they didn't need anything. They prided themselves on apathy and independence and self-sufficiency. But Paul's sufficiency is not in self. Paul's sufficiency is in Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, if I have Christ, that's all I need. He rested in Christ, in Christ alone. He had all the resources he needed in Jesus. And he lived this way, and he taught this way. Look there at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Paul writes this to his young protege and disciple. He says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentments. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. For if we have food and covering, then with these we shall be content. This is the mystery. This is the secret. You have everything you need in Christ, and Christ has promised to meet all of your needs. So listen, contentment, it's not an art. It's an acquired skill. It's not elusive. Contentment is actually attainable, but we must learn it by way of experience. Contentment, look at verse 12, is available regardless of your circumstances. Paul learned to be content regardless of how much he had or how little he had. He said there, look, I know how to get along with humble means. Humble means. Now, humble doesn't just merely mean that he's below the poverty line. It also means that he has chosen to not have the kind of esteem that he once did. And so it has both a financial connotation, but as well as a reputation. And what Paul is helping us see is that the wide spectrum of experience, he finds contentments. His heart and life had been so transformed by the God who actually humbled himself, who came from the richest of riches, who came from the highest of honor and glory, and he willingly humbled himself. And Paul is saying, if, if he can do that, then I can do that as I follow his lead. But Paul doesn't just say that. He also says, I know how to live in abundance. That word abundance, it means an overflow, plenty, plenteous. The term is for extreme prosperity. And the interesting thing is that these words both have an active and a passive connotation. You say, Dom, what do you mean by that? Well, when he says, I know how to live in abundance, it's in the active voice, which means that I am doing what I need to do. I'm working hard, and I'm experiencing the blessing of abundance from my hard work. But he also says, I know, and I've learned the secret of being filled, and that's in the passive voice, which means that prosperity worked out for him. It came his direction, whether through it was his parents or his lineage, but he didn't have to earn it. It just came to him. Those are the two types of prosperity. You inherit it, 
and you work for it. And then you say, well, that's super easy to be thankful and grateful and content when you're prosperous. But look at what else Paul says. He says, I know what it's like to go hungry, and I also know what it's like to suffer need. And both of those terms are expressing to us extreme adversity. You remember Paul's own testimony in the book of Corinthians. He said on a number of occasions, and here's one in chapter 11 and verse 7, I've been in labor, I've been in hardships, in many sleepless nights, in starvation and in thirst, often hungry, in cold and without enough clothing. Popular book says, uh, hey, this is your best life now. Paul says, no, it's not. It's not my best life now. Paul had challenging circumstances after challenging circumstances, but it never, ever touched his contentment. Going hungry, suffering need, also in the passive voice. Sometimes we hunger because we make bad mistakes with our money. We don't budget well. We overspend. We bring it upon ourselves. But there are other times where we suffer need in the passive sense, and that it just happens to us at no fault of our own. But what happens is when you put all four things together, what Paul is saying is, it doesn't matter what your situation is. You can earn prosperity. You can be born in prosperity. You can suffer adversity because you brought it upon yourself, or it could just happen to you. It doesn't matter what your situation, you can still be content. And you say, how? And Paul's answer is, contentment doesn't actually depend on your circumstances. Contentment does not depend on your season of life. Paul says, look, I've experienced it all. I know what it's like to be abased. I know what it's like to abound. I know what it's like to have little. I know what it's like to have much. And this right here, listen, church, this is the secret. Biblical contentment is not a matter of what is in your account. Biblical contentment is a matter of what is in your heart. Listen, I just want more. I just need more. If I hit the lotto, I've got a higher paying job. You don't need gold. You need God. Very simply, too often we believe that contentment is found through a combination of worldly possessions or, or worldly achievements. And we think that if we just can somehow conquer our circumstances, everything's going to be fine. I just need to get out of debt. I just need to land that job. I just, I just need to get married. I, I just need to have a family. I just need to buy that house. And then I will be content. Those things, they might change your circumstances, but they cannot change your heart. And contentment, listen to this church, is always a matter of your heart. The secret or the mystery that Paul talks about here is putting our confidence in the fact that God is in control of everything. That's the secret. When your confidence is in God's divine provision, you're not going to be weakened by depression and recession and inflation and extremely high gas prices, food, money, shortage of it, abundance of it. It's not going to matter. It's not going to alter your contentment. Now, this is why Jeremiah Burroughs in his book gives this amazing definition. Listen to what he says contentment is. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to 
and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I wish we were more like the Puritans, thinking, articulating. Let me read it one more time. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So listen, contentment is the fruit of gratitude. Contentment is a learned spiritual discipline. But number three, contentment is resting in Christ's sufficiency. Look at verse 13. You know this by heart. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our contentment comes from Christ, not self. I don't think that this verse would be butchered the way that it is if everyone understood the context. When when Paul says he can do all things, he's not talking about getting good grades. He's not talking about winning the championship. He's talking about being content in every and any situation. You see, Paul didn't need perfect circumstances to be perfectly content in life. He just needed to remember that he possessed the perfect Savior. That's what brings contentment. You see, our contentment, it comes from fellowship with God, relationship with God, communion with God, identity in Christ. That's where contentment comes. We don't need real estate investments. You just need relationship. You don't need all kinds of capital in your bank account. Just communion with the creator of the universe. All of it he gives to you, and he gives to you freely through his son. Thomas A. Kempis wisely said this. He said, you cannot find complete satisfaction in any temporal gift because you were not created to find your delight in them. He says, even if you possessed all the good things God has created, you could not feel happy and glad. All your gladness and happiness rest in the God who created those things. Powerful truth. If all you're interested in is the temporal happiness, then you'll only chase after temporal pleasures. But listen, God created you for so much more. He created you to be infinitely happy in him. See, in reality, Paul has already told us what this secret is, and it goes back to Philippians 1.21, where he says, for me, to live is Christ. Paul knows that he already possesses everything, and that's what allows him to be content. Not your health, not your bank account, not your relationships. If you have Christ, you already possess everything Your circumstances can be chaotic. But if you have Christ, you can have a calming contentment that surpasses all understanding. Listen, church, Christian, do you believe that your joy is untouchable because you're tethered to Christ? Or do you think some sort of circumstance, some sort of bad news, some sort of report of cancer today can knock you off the horse of contentment. Now, Paul says, we have every reason to be content. And let me show you something from a psalm. Turn to Psalm 103. Some are in the Psalms. Make sure you come tonight. 
But here's an opportunity for us just to look at David. This is probably one of the sweetest and, and shortest psalms in the Psalter. It's Psalm 103, and David paints here the most beautiful picture of baby-like contentment. Verse 1. O Yahweh, my heart is not exalted, and my eyes are not raised high, and I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. Surely I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, wait for Yahweh from now until forever. When you think about King David and his reputation and his history, it'd be hard, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who had more extreme highs and yet at the same time extreme lows. But here in Psalm 103, David gives us his own secret of contentment. You say, how, how does David discover his contentment? He says, like a dependent baby who no longer depends on mom for milk to be calmed, he says, in the same way, I too, I rest and I trust in God's provision and protection and the perfect peace of being in his presence. See, many of you moms with babies, you know exactly what this is like. And even if your child has grown, you can think back to those days. A child that is weaned no longer needs to be nursed by mom. i got to explain this to some of the guys. Because Jess had to explain it to me. But you think about a baby when a baby's hungry. What does a baby do when it's hungry? It cries. And when is the baby going to stop crying? When you reason with it, when you're logical, and you say, there's no need to cry. No, the, the baby stops crying when the mother takes the baby in the hand and brings it close to the chest and begins to nurse. The baby is satisfied. The baby's content. The baby's happy because the baby is in mommy's presence. But what happens when a child is weaned? When a child is weaned, the baby no longer needs mommy's milk. But that doesn't change the relationship because the baby still knows that mommy will provide but the baby is not just coming to the mommy just to be fed. The baby is enjoying the mommy's presence because he knows that the mommy loves her and cares for her. That's what it means to be weaned. And what David is saying here is, look, when we grow in our spiritual maturity, we recognize that we don't just come to God. We just don't need God. We just don't cry out to God because we need stuff. We come to him because of that relationship because he loves us like a tender mother loves a baby. You see, God, he wants to wean us from dependence upon the decaying delicacies of the earth and onto him and to his promises. And he promises to satisfy us now and forevermore. This is why David can also say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want. He satisfies my soul. This is the secret Paul is passing on to the church at Philippi. It's the correlation between confidence in the shepherd and contentment of the soul. Because Paul has been so transformed by the gospel of grace, his primary concern is not what we get or don't get in this life, but his primary concern is that we all draw near to Christ and we enjoy him regardless if we have plenty or little. Let me read another quote from Jeremiah Burroughs in this book. 
He writes this. He says, my brethren, the reason why you have not contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That's not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. He said, many men think that when they're troubled and have not got contentment, it's because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more, then they would be content. That is just as if a man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind. And then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not got enough of the wind. And then he says this, no, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. If you're looking to be satisfied with the wind, you're looking in the wrong place. And you can do that all day, and it will never satisfy. So Christian, listen. Interpret it for yourself. If you are looking for joy and pleasure and satisfaction in the temporal passing things of the world, you will never be satisfied. It only comes from the immeasurable God that has given himself to you through his son. You see, what our hearts long for is the Savior, not stuff. You could pile it up. Pile up the stuff. Pile it up. We'll never satisfy Well, let me give you just three points of application uh, as we we come to a close. These are things that hopefully will help you cultivate contentment in your own life. And so if you want more contentment, you could prayerfully um, consider these three things, okay? Um, Here's number one, avoid comparisons. Number two, adjust your expectations. And number three, adopt biblical convictions, Okay, avoid comparisons, adjust your expectations, and adopt biblical convictions. Let me just say this, and you know this. If you're comparing yourself to somebody else, it's going to rob you of contentment. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says in verse 12, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. It kind of sounds Dr. Seussish there, right? But here's the translation. Look, don't be a fool. Don't compare yourself to other people. Right? Once you take your eyes off Jesus and begin to look at what others have, then you'll easily, quickly drift away from contentment. I remember when I was young, I had a friend on my basketball team. And it just seemed like he had everything better and bigger. Right? He had the bigger house. Um, he had the bigger family. Um, he had um, the nicer cars. Um, he just had everything that I thought I wanted. And I remember at Christmas time, I got my Nintendo and I was so happy. And then I look at him and he's got a Nintendo and 10 games to go along with it and the Duck Hunt gun and the little pad that you run on and the Game Boy and a Sega. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at my Nintendo and thinking, Man, life sucks. That's what comparison does. It's going to make you discontent. See, when you're young, we're happy with the stuff we have until we look at 
what someone else has. And then all of a sudden, we're not as satisfied with our stuff because we want their stuff. But thankfully, that only happens when we're young. (laughs) You know the difference between, they say, men and boys? The only difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. Nothing changes. Getting older won't get you less discontented. Getting older might just make you more cunning and wicked in your covetousness. So how do we avoid these comparison traps? Here's hopefully something helpful. Write this down. Want what you have, even if you don't have everything that you want. Let me say it again. Want what you have, even if you don't have everything you want. You see, the key to contentment is not having everything you want, but wanting everything that you already have. And you say, Dom, where'd you get that from Yoda? That sounds like Yoda wisdom. Actually, it's from Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13.5 says this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And listen to what he says. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see, the secret to contentment is not what you have, but who you have. Contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but the realization, church, that you already have Jesus. The commentator, David Strain, he writes this. He says, The degree to which our hearts are discontent with our lots, to that same degree we will seek to make something or someone other than Jesus Christ to be the source of our deepest satisfaction That's what discontentment is. It's saying that Jesus is not enough. I need more than him. I need life to work out my way. I need a job. I need a man's attention. I need a new car. I need a pay raise. I need affection. I need a girlfriend. I need my parents' praise. Oh, sure, I love Jesus, we say to ourselves. But our lack of true contentment in him betrays how much more we love self and stuff instead If you think the grass is greener on the other side, you know what you'll be doing? You'll always be tiptoeing, looking over the fence when you don't realize the beauty and the bounty of the person who's on your side of the yard. We attend to avoid, or we we need to avoid comparisons, but listen, we also need to adjust our expectations. Adjust your expectations. Are you expecting from the world and from others what God alone can satisfy. You need to be honest with yourself. You need to ask yourself that. Do you honestly believe if you just had a little bit more of whatever it is that you would be happy? I hope this doesn't come to a surprise, as a surprise to you, but you know that this world is not going to satisfy you, right? You know that? But listen, if if we're walking around with a sense of entitlement, thinking that the world owes us happiness, or we think that other people exist to to bring us satisfaction, we're going to be in a perpetual state of ingratitude and dissatisfaction. So how, Dom, do we adjust our expectations? Well, it's not apathy like the Stoics. It's not fatalistic. 
We don't try to convince ourselves that all is well when in reality we know that it's not. How do we do it then? We don't ignore circumstances. We live in our circumstances with Christ, keeping our eyes and our heart and our mind fixed on him. That is how contentment comes. Listen to what Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says, and you, you know her, she says, for me, true contentment on earth means asking less of this life because more is coming in the next. Godly contentment is great gain, heavenly gain, because God has created the appetites in your heart. It stands to reason that he must be the consummation of all that hunger. Yes, heaven will galvanize your heart if you focus your faith, not on a place of glittery mansions, but on the person, Jesus, who makes heaven a home. So in other words, what she's saying is, look, don't settle for the trinkets of this world when your true treasure is in heaven. That's our focus. We need to adjust our expectations. And this is exactly what Paul says that our minds need to be, not on things below, but things above, where Christ is, seated in the heavenly places. Christian, do you realize that everything that your heart desires is in Christ. Do you believe that? Your desire for rest, vacations, getaways, Sabbaths, ultimately it's Christ. He's the one that said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your soul. Do you want freedom from sin? Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you want stability? Do you want security? Do you want safety? He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Do you want relationship? Do you want love? Do you want fidelity? Do you want commitment? The Bible says we have no greater friend than Jesus. He's promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. Do you want family? He's the one that says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. And he's the one that introduces us and, and fortifies our relationship with the Father. Are you hungry? Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Are you thirsty? He says, I'm the fountain of living water. Are you naked? He covers you with his righteousness. Do you need health? The Bible says he's the great physician. Do you have knowledge? He holds it out to you and says, here you go. It's free. Just call out for understanding and I will give it. Do you want comfort? The Bible says that he does not crush a bruised reed. Do you want compassion? It flows out of him endlessly. Do you want riches? The Bible says that you are co-heirs with Christ. We could literally be here all day. You name it. Justice, counsel, wisdom, truth, protection, provision, power, patience, forgiveness, salvation, joy, peace, Everything that your heart truly longs for can only come through Christ. G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton wisely said this. He said, there are two ways to get enough. Listen, one is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. Listen, you don't need more stuff when you have Jesus. For the Christian, less is more. And if you have Christ, you have more than enough.
So listen, avoid comparisons, adjust expectations, and finally, we need to adopt biblical convictions. Uh, Philippians has all been about Christ, all about gospel, all about joy, but one thing that Paul says over and over again is think, think, think. Consider, consider, consider. Paul wants us to think biblically because what we believe about God, listen, what you believe about God determines your contentments. Christian contentment is about believing that Jesus really is enough. And so let me ask you as we close, do you trust in his character? Do you believe that he's not only sovereign, but he's sufficient for all of your needs? Do you believe that he's both wise and good in every dealing with you? See, if you believe that he's in control, you'll be content. If you disbelieve and distrust, you'll be discontent. If you lack confidence in God, you will covet and complain. And listen, non-Christians, let me just say this to you. If this is the ongoing, unbroken patterning of your life, the Bible is very clear. You will be condemned. You say, Dom, that sounds a little harsh. You're saying that God's going to condemn me for a little discontentment? I'm glad that you are thinking that way and asking that question. Let me give you the reason why discontentment is so disgusting. Listen to this. What are you doing when you distrust and disregard God's sovereignty? You're saying, God, this should have never happened to me. That loss, that thing that you took away, this wife, this house, this money, this job, this shouldn't have happened to me. When you distrust and disregard God's sufficiency, you're saying, God, what you've given me is not enough. I need more. I need better. You do not know what you're doing. When you disregard and distrust God's goodness, you're saying, you're not really for me. And when you distrust and disregard God's love, you're saying, God, you don't love me. And ultimately, what you're saying with discontentment is, God, you are not enough. That's what discontentment says. And every time that we're discontent, we're going to distrust and dishonor the one who has given us everything. Life, breath, and everything we need. And so what it really comes down to is this. Do you believe that Jesus provided everything for you on the cross if you're not satisfied in what Christ offers you by giving his own life so that you can have salvation and relationship with the creator of the universe, you are rejecting the greatest gift ever given. God has already proclaimed it from the rooftops loud and clear. I love you this much. I've given my son for you. And if you say, God, that's not enough, that is not only a disgrace, but that is the highest dishonor to the creator who gave you the greatest gift. You see, the discontent person says, life's not fair, I want more, I deserve more. The Christian says the same exact thing. He says, life is not fair, I actually deserve hell and punishment 
and eternal separation. But because of the gospel of grace, because of Jesus' blood, because of your love, God, you sent your son to die for my sins. And if I accept this free offer of grace and trust him for the forgiveness of my sins, I can be with you now and forevermore and find that I have contentment for all of my life. There's an enormous difference in what we believe and how we live. And listen, the measure to which you understand what you truly deserve and what you've been given in Christ will tell you how content you are this morning. Let me close with this poem. It's titled Present Tense. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 that I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. That was written by a 14-year-old. He understood the trap of discontentment, always wanting something else and not enjoying what you have. Christian, you have Christ. Your poem, your hymn should sound like this. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All that I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, uh, we need you so desperately, God. We know that our hearts are so prone to wander. We know, God, that if left unchecked and if we continue with incorrect thinking about your sovereignty and sufficiency and goodness, it's only going to lead to ingratitude and covetousness and greed and envy and discontentment. And so, Lord, we pray, we beg you that you would help us, that whether we have a little or we have a lot, whether we're forgotten whether we're known, God, whether we're feasting on the finest food or it's leftovers for days, God, we pray that we would please recognize your faithfulness. Lord, you've given us everything that we need in Christ. He is enough. And I pray that we, as Grace Church Monterey Bay, would encourage each other toward that end. We'd remind each other of those very things that all that we've needed your gracious hand has provided. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.